Welcome to the Sporting History Podcast, brought to you by the British Society of Sport History in association with the Institute of Historical Research. This week we're continuing the series of conversations with researchers who have given papers at the BSSH's Sport and Leisure History Seminar Series at the IHR with Tom Weir. Hi Tom. Hello. Tom is a postgraduate researcher at De Montfort University in Leicester and he's researching the history of sports and people with learning disabilities. Tom also specialises in the history of rugby and has written a fascinating account of the career of the black, uh, black player James Peters who represented England at Rugby Union in the early 20th century. Now, Tom, your paper at the IHR discussed Britain's role in the development of the Special Olympics. Can you explain what the Special Olympics is for those who are not really familiar with the event? Yeah, sure thing. Uh, Special Olympics is uh, one of the members, it's part of the Olympic family, it's the, the, the kind of third branch of the Olympic family, but isn't particularly well known in Britain. It's a grassroots organisation primarily, it's got around 150 clubs around Britain, although that number's varies slightly, uh, between 100 and 150, and it's been going in Britain since 1978. Okay. Uh, it's primarily run by volunteers, but it caters for people who have a learning disability. Uh, also known as an intellectual disability, I'm probably going to use those two words interchangeably. Right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the learning disability right. tends to tends to be used more in Britain. Uh, I know they're both quite contested terminologies as well. Uh, I, I tend to use intellectual disability when I'm when I'm talking about sport, uh, but that generally we, it would incorporate people with Down syndrome, with uh, sort of quite severe autism. It would uh, is usually given as having an IQ below seventy. And that it would also incorporate people with that sort of big catch-all term of, of uh, learning delay or special educational needs. Yeah. And they've been running clubs that do various different sports. So some clubs will do multi-sports, some clubs will focus on just one sport like athletics, table tennis, swimming. And uh, they're, as I said, primarily run all around the country by volunteers and have been doing so since 1978. They have uh, national games every four years. So the last national games was held in Sheffield, where they'll have actually thousands of athletes turning up, representing their various regions. And they also then have international games, which yeah. are every four years. And there were international games this year in March in Abu Dhabi. Oh, okay. And they were actually the, the largest mass participation event in the world for this year. Right. For, so across any sport, across anywhere, they are the, the largest uh, participation event. But you wouldn't really know about it. Yeah, it seems a shame because I think the media impact is obviously not as not as big as the Olympics or the Paralympics. It, it's not, and I, there are people that get very upset about that. I, it's not elite sport. Is something to obviously point out. Uh, it is something where there's a, there's some amazing feats of athleticism uh, that perform, but they are very much about inclusion. They. Uh, don't have the same kind of cutthroat attitude to elite sport that the Paralympics does. Mm. It isn't about who can absolutely run the fastest, they will have various time bandings. And one of the criticisms that sometimes gets levelled at Special Olympics is the idea that everyone gets a medal, yeah. which isn't technically true. Everyone, the, the first three get a medal, then the rest get ribbons. But uh, there, there has been this traditional sort of attitude towards uh, inclusion that they want to appreciate everyone's efforts. Participation is the key. Yes, yeah. uh, but it, it, it does have a bit of a, uh, a sort of wishy-washy image in some, right. in some cases, which is, is not entirely merited, uh, but is also not wholly untrue, if, if 
that makes sense. That partly goes back to the origins of the of the movement, doesn't it? In America, I think uh, it does. You're yeah. right. Yes. Yeah. So the the very origins of it go back to 1968, and uh, Eunice Kennedy Shriver, who was the the sister of, of JFK, uh, who I probably don't need to explain who he was. No. <laughs> uh, but that that came. Her motivation actually came uh, through her fa a family member. Uh, through her sister uh, Rosemary who had a learning disability who was very very poorly treated by the family and she was inspired from that and from visiting asylums uh, as they were then yeah uh, very different world in the 60s to nowadays yeah uh, but these sort of big out-of-town institutions where people with learning disabilities tended to be sort of put away and uh, locked hidden. away forgotten yeah. about hidden is a very good term yeah and she sort of realised that these were pretty appalling places and that sport could be a real benefit for, for people. Uh, firstly, in terms of their own sort of welfare, but also in terms of how the public would see people with learning disabilities and, and sport was a real bridger and, and a yeah. very good place to, to kind of meet socially in, in a sort of safe environment and in an understanding environment. So she founds the first uh, Special Olympics off the back of a, a couple of camps she ran uh, called Camp Shrivers for people with learning disabilities. It's 1968, uh, is, is then the first games which were held in Chicago and over the course of the next 10 years it, it, it builds first in France uh, where her husband Sergeant Shriver was an uh, ambassador which yeah. always helps and it takes 10 years before it eventually sort of comes over to Britain and the, the origins of it coming to Britain are, are with uh, Chris Maloney, who was yeah, a, yes. a swimming coach down in uh, down yeah, I think Gloucester. Your, your paper particularly focused on his role, didn't it, in the kind of the development of the Special Olympics here? It did, yes. Yeah. So I, I suppose it's important to point out actually that he wasn't the very first person to be working with people with learning disability, and there was actually a, a club that was set up in Cardiff in 1959 called the Cardiff Chameleons by a, a woman called Joyce Robinson. Mm -hmm. And that, to the best of my knowledge, is the very first club specifically for people with intellectual disability anywhere in the world. Yeah. Prior to that, we do have the Paralympics uh, here in Britain, or as they were known then, the Stoke Mandeville Games, which are uh, founded by Ludwig Gutmann, who is a very important figure in, in Paralympic and disability sport history, yeah. a, a contested figure. I probably don't have time to go into all of the, the no. issues there, but uh, he is yeah. important. But at this stage, that is purely for, for athletes who are in a wheelchair. It's largely focused around hospitals. It's not really a big kind of community movement yet. And so, special, so Chris Maloney sets up uh, his first club, actually, from having the inspiration of, of seeing the brother of one of the people that he was training. So he was working as a swimming coach in Gloucester. He was training a class on a, I think it was Saturday. He thought it was Saturday. Right. <laughs> I'm not entirely sure if that's an so important you, detail or not. You interviewed him, did you? I did. I went yeah. down to his oh, home okay. and, and yeah. over two days uh, interviewed him for a, a life history. And a lot of my research has been based around oral history. Okay. Because fortunately, a lot of the, the key individuals are still alive and, and are very happy to talk about their role in, in setting clubs up. So. Chris was fantastic. He was one of my one of my earliest interviews, and we actually did a fair bit of it walking along the beach in Barnstable, which I would highly recommend as an interview <laughs> location. Not, not bad it, uh, compared to being stuck in an archive. It's <laughs> not bad. Uh, yeah. It's it's one of the reasons I'd suggest oral history as a fantastic methodology for uh, for budding historians out there. But interviewed Chris, and he explained, you know, he he 
ultimately sort of drew his first inspiration from seeing the brother of one of the people he was coaching up in the stands cheering him on and this young lad whose name was Paul had uh, was, was you know enthusiastically cheering his brother on he could see he was the right age mm. to be able to take part so he went up asked the parents you know why don't you let Paul take part and their response was that well he has Down syndrome so of course he couldn't swim yeah and that was kind of the predominant medical thinking at the time. You know, these, this wasn't the case of sort of bad parenting. This was them following what was a medical orthodoxy, which was that people with learning disabilities, but particularly Down syndrome, you know, weren't safe to, yeah. to participate in sport or couldn't or couldn't understand it or would get in trouble or, or just wouldn't be able to do it. And um, I, I sort of unpack a fair bit of that in my early chapters and, mm. and how you know, medical orthodoxy really pushed back against people with learning disability being safe to compete and how we ultimately know now that's complete bullhocking. Yeah. But Chris oh, took this as a challenge, said, well, look, give me a chance. And, you know, alongside he had, you know, Paul in the water, he had his brother in there with him demonstrating the strokes and he came up the curve really, really quickly and was... Yeah was learning to swim and was then included in these mainstream classes alongside other children within I think Chris was saying about 10 weeks which is pretty good it's extraordinary progress. isn't it uh, I mean it took me about that long to swim yeah. at least so you know it was really very impressive and that was the start and then from there Chris realized you know actually there's there's this whole group of people that should be included should have this chance to, to swim it's, it was for him it was a real kind of equality yeah. Uh, motivation to, to get people in the pools, get them to get them swimming, to get them involved. And after involving a couple of people, it was actually his mother who inspired him to write to Eunice Kennedy Shriver. Oh, okay. Because she had read the uh, the book actually by her mother, uh, which I think it was Times to Remember, if I'm remembering that correctly, and just suggested, look, this is something that fits in with what you're doing, and why don't you? you reach out to them and, and see you know whether they'd be able to support yeah he wrote to them uh, wrote to Eunice got a very positive response back she suggested yes there's support yes there's probably a bit of money and go out and see what else is out there and there wasn't an awful lot uh, as I said there was actually already the, the club in Cardiff though and there were a number of uh, Mincap gateway clubs around the country that were taking part in recreation. So that kind of offers a network to, to bolt this onto, I There guess. was, yeah. yeah. So there were, there were uh, in some of these institutions, in some of these asylums, there yeah. were, they were often in very nice big grounds. There was a lot of informal sport or yeah. informal recreation that was going on, quite often led by, you know, if a doctor quite enjoyed playing cricket, he would get some of the patients to come out and play cricket with him. Yeah. Uh, and that was, that was a very recognized and, and a normal thing to seen do. as a therapy almost yeah. and uh, you know throughout the 20th century it was either uh, in some cases it was seen as therapy in some cases it was seen as a, a way of control and getting out excess energy uh, kind of almost depending on the decade and what the prevailing climate of how people with disability were seen yeah. but there was definitely stuff going on already in, and there was adult training centers that were playing sport there were uh, some of the, the said men cap gateway clubs but there wasn't really a formalized sporting competition that was going on right at the start that Chris was setting this up um, 
coincidentally over the other side of the country, so he's over in Gloucester, over in Lowestoft, there was the Mini Olympics that were setting up, right. uh, that was being organised by, by Jim Thomas and Nicholas Brickhouse, and I, I interviewed Nicholas uh, Brickhouse, again as part of my research, and um, they were setting up, but they were looking at getting adult training centres along to come and take part in sports days, sort of annual sports days, rather than setting up clubs and that more yeah. kind of grassroots approach. But Chris goes out, finds these various clubs, finds ways of support. There is some quite important early political support as well um, coming through from the Kennedys, and they they contact various politicians they know, uh, like sort of Sir Hugh Fraser, who's a, a sort of Tory grandee, suggesting to him, you know, you need to support this. So it's very much private initiative, um, mix of charity and kind of. Um, big weeks I suppose it, it is them. yeah and one of the sort of one of the themes that I kind of explore is this is right at the beginning of the kind of conservative neoliberal approach towards charity towards welfare and and at the start of Special Olympics you know it really taps into that it's, a, it's a, it is a private sort of enterprise run by fundraising run by volunteers it gets a lot of conservative party support uh, with Sir Eldon Griffiths comes on board quite quite shortly after. Okay. Uh, there's a lot of celebrities that get involved quite early on. There, there's a real sort of sense of noblesse oblige around uh, Special Olympics that I think in, in some ways continues to this day, that people go along and, and help uh, sort of out the goodness of their heart and, and, and how that's important rather than looking at state for being an important intervention. Um, almost going back to the, the original Olympic movements um, amateur ethos, is it? That, that this is uh, this is primarily for fun. I, I would say so. Yeah. Uh, and you know, even in in this today, I would still say ninety eight percent of people involved with Special Olympics are, are volunteers, mm. uh, especially around the country in in the regions. And clubs are run by volunteers. Regions are run by volunteers. There's still quite a small central staff. It, it's still very kind of characteristic of that. Uh, that sort of private enterprise element um, but they do use a lot of effective use of celebrities and uh, probably the very first well the very first I've discovered uh, involved was Superman right who was involved or to be more accurate Christopher Reeve yeah. for younger uh, listeners he was yes. the original uh, he was the original he was the best yeah. <laughs> uh, I, my, my fiance would probably say Henry Cavill is the more attractive but let's face it for, for many people, Chris, you know, Christopher Reeve is the definitive Superman, mm. uh, and you can't take that away from anyone, as is the John Williams soundtrack. But um, he was involved actually uh, very early on with s some of the promotion because uh, that, that came through the Kennedy Shrivers again, who knew that Superman was being filmed in, in London and suggested to Chris Maloney that he take a few athletes along to go and do a quick photo shoot. Yeah. And Actually, the story that, that came out from there that uh, Chris Maloney told me about was that he, he took these photos that got taken. Crystal Reeve was, was superb, was interacting with the athletes, absolutely fantastic. And he took these photos to various sort of newspapers around the country to say, you know, would you mind publishing these to, 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 to highlight what we're doing? Um, Paul was involved in that photo shoot as well, by the way. Yes. Yeah. One of the young lads with Down syndrome involved in the photo shoot. But he takes these to the, the newspaper editors and one of them came back to say, we, we couldn't possibly 
print this. People might be distressed by seeing photos of people with disability. Yeah. And for Maloney, that was a real, that was never something he'd considered would be the case. Shocking, but it, really. it, it does speak yeah. to a lot of the attitudes and, yeah. and it, there is a, a real lack of people with disability in, in the media being presented. And, and in, so that editor certainly wasn't alone in his opinion that yeah, yeah. we shouldn't display people with disabilities. Um, that said, there is evident, and, and local papers quite often do cover local sports days from adult training centres that, or institutions or local clubs, and um, there is definitely some photos. So that wasn't a, a, an across-the-board yeah. attitude. So, but, so in a way, your thesis is is looking at uh, intellectual disability in sport, but you're you're really tracing the history of social attitudes towards people with intellectual disabilities as much as anything. Yeah, very much so. And uh, I mean, one can't exist without the other. Yeah. And I think that rather than it just being a, a simple view towards, you know, what sport was played and where, I think sport really kind of importantly taps into those social attitudes. Mm. I, I think it tends to sit a little bit behind in terms of chronology. So it, it very rarely completely shapes attitudes. Um, but what it does do, and, and one of the terms I've, I've kind of coined through my, uh, my thesis is this term of physical advocacy. Yeah. And I think that sport has an incredibly important role to shape in terms of social, I'll call it social justice here. Yeah. Because what sport does is it shows people's physical ability, and, and particularly for people with disability, even though it's a mental disability, they, they tend to get written off as being useless or hopeless or... Yeah not productive members of society because they're not physically capable yeah. and sport shows that to be complete nonsense if someone can uh, sport gives you very very hard fast numbers and facts and if someone can run 100 meters faster than you you cannot turn around and put them in a box and say that they're not physically capable of yeah. being productive members of society I mean that's just that's a num numbered fact um, you know, I, I quite like going to the gym. I know I can push a decent amount of weight. But I also know that there's people with Down syndrome with learning disabilities who do considerably more than that. It's very, very hard for me then, were I to try and turn around and say, oh, well, you know, you, why, you wouldn't be able to work with heavy weights because they can. It, gives you, it can. gives you objective examples of excellence amongst a community that was seen as being somehow not equal. It, it yeah. does. And it, it shows that they're capable of dedicating themselves to something. And it shows that they're able to, to be involved, to compete and, and need to be kind of considered uh, members of society yeah. rather than just dismissed because they might have trouble with maths or English or writing or whatever it is that puts them in that, that sort of semi-artificial box of intellectual disability. Um, it's very social model think that, yeah. by the way. Uh, yeah. And I, 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 uh, for anyone who's not aware of the different models of disability, there's the physical, uh, there's the, the medical model of disability, which says that a disability is individualised and essentially someone's fault and it located within them. And there's the social model, which says that actually it's a failure of society to adapt to difference, yeah. and that ultimately the, the fault should lie with society that they're not able to uh, incorporate someone who is slightly different, which is, is very applicable here. Foucauldian way of looking at, uh, at that question, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned oral history because oral history is so important, isn't it, for looking at 
at these kinds of mm. activities because they because they don't leave so much of a record in the archive, do they? And there are other people I've been talking to, like Raf, about women's cricket. So it's mm. really important to go straight to the horse's mouth, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's that's probably the, the biggest reason for doing oral history was mm. I, I looked for archives and they just weren't there. Yeah, yeah. I, I think as well, I mean, there's a, I've tried to incorporate as much opinion from the athletes and, and speak to them. And um, as I said already, they very often are, are placed in this box of intellectual disability because they might struggle with writing or reading. So yeah. why would I ask them to do a written account? Yeah, yeah. That's just confirming to them why society thinks that they're disabled, whereas they're very articulate, they're perfectly able to put their thoughts together, yeah. a lot of these athletes, but I'm just not going to put them in the position where I'm asking them to write it down. Yeah. I, that's, that's really, these kinds of PhD research projects are really important because you're mm. building the archive, aren't you? So other researchers can, in the future, I assume, read your uh, oral histories? And yeah, I've got the transcripts. I've, I've yeah. More importantly, I've obviously kept the tapes as well because I think, yeah. the, for me, one of the really key things with oral history, and I, I think it's something um, Doug Booth is very passionate about, yeah. is that there's more to it than just the transcript. It's not just a flat set of paper you you want to hear the nuance in someone's language yeah. you want to hear the emotion when they talk about uh certain things i mean you, to go back to you know the transcripts of chris maloney yeah. you can really hear the pride coming through in his voice you can hear the indignation at the fact that someone would say that someone with learning disability couldn't compete you can hear him talking about how important he felt it was that you know he got to the, the world games you can uh you can hear him sort of discussing kind of stuff and, 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 and it's really hard to get across in a thesis it's really hard to get across on a transcript but that's quite important yeah. um, I would have loved to have done it as, as video recorded interviews as well because I think there's even more you can read about with someone's face with someone's hand expressions um, I know I'm a, I'm a big sort of arm flapper uh, and there's a lot of, of hand expressions I'm doing yeah, now yeah, yeah. <laughs> to emphasise that, that won't come across, but yeah. you might be able to sort of hear it slightly in the, in the emphasis and the voice. Yeah. And I think that's really important to capture as well. We, we have the technology to do it, so we should do it. Um, to come back to the archives as well, there, there wasn't much written archives. There's a lot of stuff that is important that people still held on to. I had a, a lot of help from uh, Doug Williamson, who is a former lecturer at Nottingham Trent. Yeah. I don't know if everyone, anyone ever becomes a former lecturer. They sort of <laughs> always stay involved somehow. Should we say retired or semi-retired? Uh, but he's been very involved and he produced this fantastic bundle of information from his, uh, literally from his basement. He made me smell them to prove that it had come from his basement as well, which is slightly more surreal <laughs> than I was, I was ever thinking was going to happen. But they definitely were from his basement uh, he should probably put some damp proofing down there but you know though that sort of information was an absolute treasure trove and, and he he was also very personally incredibly helpful with putting me in contact with people and being a gatekeeper and um, uh, sort of semi-bullying people into meeting me and making sure that was there but it was amazing how many doors opened once once I was going yeah. I had set out not necessarily with the intention of it being predominantly oral history based in my first year but come second year when archives were not there but doors kept opening for people saying yeah absolutely we'll meet you for coffee we'll talk to you it 
my PhD sort of transitioned slightly to being more oral history based and I, Much I think more it's contemporary all, I guess I, I think it's all the better for that yeah, yeah. as well you, you, how far are you into the PhD now so I'm um, coming up to into my third year I have nearly got all my chapters written in draft right. as I'm sure you'll know that could mean yeah. I'm three months <laughs> off that could mean I'm six months off sometimes I, it just clicks like that though. It, I'm, I'm really yeah. hoping it does but yeah. we we've been I've been doing chapters as I go that was one of the the big suggestions to my supervisor which was incredibly helpful and we've been writing and kind of reviewing as I go along. Who's your supervisor? Uh, Dr Neil Carter oh, and right. oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> Matthew yeah. Taylor as well, yeah. Uh, yeah. both at DMU. Yeah, um, the, the, yeah. maybe you can talk to us some more about um, De Montfort and they have a centre don't they for International yeah, Centre we for do. Sports the, History? The uh, International Centre for Sports History and Culture I can never remember the acronym, but it's YCHSC. I get it wrong in official things. <laughs> it, it's a. I did my masters there as well. We do a masters in sports history, which was uh, for me a very good gateway into discovering a bit more about sports history, which has always been my my kind of dual passions. And realised quite early on, there's a, a very interesting PhD to be done on learning disability sports, simply yeah. because there was this huge black hole in. It was something that I was completely unaware of when well, I, I knew vaguely about the Special Olympics, yeah. but I'd never read any work by anybody. And, about and I think you're before. you're certainly not in a minority yeah. uh, when it comes to that. And it's it's not you know anyone's fault or an issue because of it. But I just thought here is something that we really need to to go at and, and look at. And there's been a fair bit of scholarship on the Paralympics, uh, some very very good stuff yeah. on the Paralympics. Yeah, it's exploded in the last sort of five to ten years I guess uh, hasn't it but there was still this gap on learning disability yeah uh, when it came to disability sports and I think when you're doing a PhD that's probably the the first and chief consideration is is there a gap to to be filled yeah that was always how I approached it anyway and it, it it meant that I was going into sort of new territory and I had support straight from the off from from Neil who had actually been involved with Special Olympics in 2009. Okay, uh, I didn't know that. The centre, uh, alongside the University of Leicester as well, when the Special Olympics was in Leicester, they had done a, a report on the games, the, the national games that, that was there, and written up a report on the legacy of it and planning. And uh, so they they had these sort of insights into Special Olympics. Yeah, so it was a, it was a natural fit. To, to it it was, and there was also a. a history done, a sort of official history done by Dr Susan Barton as well, who had done that through the, the centre, which was, um, I have to say, has been a, been a really good sort of bedrock, and she's been very helpful with sharing interview transcripts as well, yeah. and that was able to kind of provide me with a, a good structure of Special Olympics history, but I, I just knew there was so much more out there, and and that's been the kind of principal concern that I've been finding, and, and looking at that, so looking at how MenCap were involved, looking at how these adult training centres, which is, is probably my, my biggest sort of finding, is is that there's this whole hinterland of sport that's taking place that yeah. we never knew about. Yeah, and um, now and now you're working at De Montfort helping um, other researchers. Yes, I am. Yeah. yeah. So I've I in I'm in the process still of finishing the PhD, but I yeah. I'm looking. I, I've I've started uh, sort of transitioning to to the PhD afterlife yeah. uh, whereby I've, I'm doing a little bit of, of undergraduate teaching but uh, realised again there was a nice big gap in terms of uh, looking after our 
uh, across the board at, at De Montfort looking after our PhD researchers. And that involved uh, working with alumni, yeah. that's involved uh, trying to help uh, with more sort of welfare based things and, and really being able to put my own understanding of what what it's been my PhD journey, yeah. what I would have liked along the way to help me yeah, and I therefore think, yeah. how can we help other PhDs whether they're British students based in Leicester, British students based around the country, international students in Leicester, inter everyone has their own journey but sometimes it's it, you know a little bit of guidance, a little bit of help particularly at the start even if it's just having a coffee with someone to, to tell you not to panic. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think there'll be a lot of people out there who are in the middle of PhD or have finished PhDs and will certainly recognise that sometimes the research is the easy bit. It's, yeah. the, it's the stuff around that it, it's sort of life, life management, I suppose. Yeah, and I, I, th I just looked at it and thought, as, as you're probably very well aware, yeah. academic jobs are not easy to get no. now. <laughs> they, even if you're the best candidate with some of the best links, it's, it's probably going to be two to three years of applying, working part-time, doing, you know, really scrapping yeah. um, to, to get a full-time post, if there's a full-time post there. And I just, well, partly because I'm getting married next year and, and she who must be obeyed did not like the idea of me not working for uh, a few years. <laughs> but, Fair enough. But also because I realised there was real value in my experience going back into that sort of more managerial side of the university. Mm and looking at how I could better other people's journey and also how I could help kind of connect the university better with their oh, It's really uh, important for the university to, to get people completed as well, isn't yeah. it? Because you know, that's, that's what it's for, right? Well, PhDs only count for the university if they're completed. Yeah. Otherwise, you know, they don't count towards the ref. They don't really count as alumni. They've probably had a bad experience, yeah. the person, in, unless, you know, some, unless they've been offered they don't complete because they've been offered some miraculous job somewhere else but it, it's it's an important aspect and, and you need someone who's done a PhD to understand other PhDs yeah yeah I think yeah, yeah. And, and in an alumni role as well to be able to reach out to former PhDs it, it helps having someone who's doing a PhD or done a PhD to be able to speak the language yeah yeah it's something I've done a little bit of with Burke, Burke um, of PhD yeah. because um, you're able to connect to someone a hell of a lot better than someone who's just getting in touch to tell them about whether they should donate to the new building. Yeah. I, I don't think PhD alumni are interested in, in that, but they are interested in what's their supervisor doing, what are current PhDs doing, is there a way of supporting the faculty, can I come yeah. back to, to visit to offer up my wisdom Yeah. Uh, and come in and maybe I could talk for an hour about you know my own PhD journey and, and having resilience or having uh, research problems maybe they could mentor a current PhD student uh, they want to hopefully stay involved in the in the research you know even if they've gone and done something completely different there's always I think anyway the that sort of back of your mind thing about oh I could do something a bit more with what I did with yeah. my PhD so yeah. why not you know still present a paper every year um, yeah. I know that's one of the things BSSH does brilliantly is is being a, a very good outlet for people who maybe aren't professional historians but to still be able to come along, yeah. present their research and, and really offer something to the to the community whilst indulging their passion and, and giving them a, 
yeah, a, a reason to go and research on a Sunday afternoon on, you know, in an archive. I'm glad you brought that up because uh, it's something that I'm quite interested in trying to get set up now. Mm. We have the seminars that happen in London and they are very academic. It's an mm. academic environment at the IHR. But what we're kind of looking at doing is also doing some public history events where we would encourage uh, amateur researchers, mm. I suppose, um, of whom some are better than professional researchers. Yeah. Um, in my experience, and we want to try and set up some events like that. So maybe it's something we could talk about at De Montfort. We might be able to. Well, do definitely. Something. I and I, yeah. I, I think you're entirely right on that. Yeah. Um, that idea of, of quite often, you know, non-professional researchers, because they're researching a passion, um, they're often better, and they're, they're yeah. actually often better storytellers because they don't get bogged down in some of the analysis. Yeah, yeah. It, you do sometimes see there is a, a this sort of professional story I mean I, I I sometimes describe what I do as storytelling yeah uh, rather than really getting into the nitty-gritty and I, I that's potentially a failing of me not being able to really go into the deepest darkest depths of how you know Foucault might affect my studies but it's well it's, it's something that you have to balance isn't it, it so is. if you're writing the thesis that's a different kind of writing isn't it even yeah. to writing an article or to write or definitely to communicating mm. to a more public audience yeah it's something that that we all need to learn to be able to talk in different accents, I guess, is what it yeah. is, isn't it? And that's a, that's a good way of putting it, I think, yeah. and, and I certainly think sports history lends itself very well to that yeah. uh, public-facing uh, sphere or that, that, that sort of public accent that uh, yeah. You, yeah. you should have because the, a lot of people come into it, you know, whether if you're talking about cycling history, a lot of people who enjoy cycling would be more interested to come and hear a story about Tom Simpson or about Bradley Wiggins or about something that is a hobby for them perhaps but that leads them into history and, and yeah. then once they're there hopefully they can hear a little bit more and, and, and think about it in a little bit more depth about you know actually maybe there is some class issues to be yeah. explored yeah, here yeah, or, yeah. or maybe there's some more historical elements to be to be explored here and I, I think there is something that sport history is starting to do really well and, and you know, as a sort of rallying cry, we need more people to do. Yeah, or well, someone, so, someone whose story we've both told in different ways. Um, yeah, is uh, James Peters, isn't it? Who I think was the subject of your MA dissertation. He, he was, yeah. And yeah. Um, to, to and give he's you somebody who really ties together that class, ethnicity, and he, he abso absolutely yeah. does. Yeah. And um, to give you your due credit on uh, on that, I managed to find some some stuff in British, uh, in English language and, and British papers, but. Um, a lot of that thesis sort of sat on the shoulders of your work looking at well, uh, I mean, I'm making him blush yeah. now <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah I mean James Peters is an absolutely fascinating story yeah. and, and it's it's well told originally some of the research came through the World Rugby Museum and, and yeah. again to give credit where it's due to the research they did and and, um, and Tony uh, Collins as well yeah. down there and, and yeah. Tony who um, yeah, I mean you can't go anywhere in rugby history without Tony being absolutely <laughs> stamped across it and he's, he's this amazing story that, that was really you know, almost forgotten until the World Rugby Museum mm. sort of went and, and refound him. And, and there were so many more characters out there like this. And there's a story in the BBC Sport today about the first black women uh, tennis champion who right. wasn't allowed to play in America, uh, Flushing Meadows. And yeah. You just think, how have we not heard this story? Why yeah. is this not being fated from the rafters like Jackie Robinson is? But 
for people who don't know about Peter's. Yes, sorry, to get it back yeah. to Peter's. <laughs> uh, I've, I've digressed slightly. So Peter's, he plays for England in 1905, 1906. He is the son of a uh, black West Indian uh, lion tamer. Yeah. He was travelling with a circus. His mother was white. This was very common actually at the time, that, that ethnic mix. And um, he's got a quite a tragic start to life because his dad was apparently eaten by his own lions, which screams Hollywood straight off the bat, doesn't it? I tried but to write a film script based on his life. <laughs> it's it, just extraordinary. It would be yeah. brilliant because he's, he then joins this. He's part of the circus as a bareback rider depending on whether you believe this, I think, slightly exaggerated stories. Uh, he was abandoned by the circus, potentially chained to a wagon wheel, which I think is nonsense, yeah. but he certainly was moved to an orphanage and he, he grows up in an orphanage in South London. Yeah, in Blackheath, um, I think. It was in Blackheath, yeah. Fagan's orphanage. Yeah. Uh, not Fagan, but <laughs> it, it can have a nice Oliver Twist bit there yeah. if, if people want to see that. And it's at Blackheath that he sort of watches rugby he was a champion athlete, he was, very, he was winning all the sports days recorded in the, the, the books at Fegans. But sees rugby, learns it, enjoys it, he moves to Bristol, he becomes a carpenter, moves to Bristol, is playing in the Bristol team uh, after a year living in Bristol. And that's the sort of first site of some racial discrimination mm. because there's two members of the Bristol board who resign based on... Uh, his, his inclusion in the Bristol team which, which actually at the time wasn't was kind of a uh, a sort of uh, Bristol was almost a sort of regional team or county team rather yeah. than it just being a club because they would play the big games but there's definite evidence that there were board members who resigned uh, Peters is there for, for two years and then moves down to, to Plymouth probably for work because he is still an amateur player and very much just a working class amateur player. He's working as a carpenter, he's working on the docks, and he's working the morning of games. And he establishes a very big name for himself, is being touted particularly by the West Country papers as he should be playing for England. But this is where it all starts getting murky as to, yeah. to why he's not being selected because it could be to do with and there is speculation that it's because he's uh, of mixed race or was, was black as he was considered then that he wasn't being selected mm. and this kind of clamour grows until he finally is uh, selected he plays against the Tory New Zealand team um, but he's playing for the county team and he gets selected to play for England against Scotland and England would uh, have a surprise win in that game yeah. and he plays very well he's playing alongside a chap called Adrian Stoop who yeah. is very familiar to a lot of rugby followers yeah. Yeah. Uh, of Stoop Memorial ground fame he then plays against France uh, which uh, a lot of your research turned up actually this is an extraordinary story because they've got two black French yeah, players in there as well they're captained by a black player at that time and who was uh, Georges Jerome I yeah, think that's right, and they've yeah. got André Vergère as well yeah and that is the most number of black players you have on a pitch until I think the 1990s yeah, I traced it as. It's unbelievable, isn't it? Which does seem absolutely outrageous, but that's, that's you know, historical fact there, yeah. uh, actually being included. Plays brilliantly well, scores a try, they absolutely smash the French. And then the South Africans come to, to, on their tour of 1906, and there's a, there's a lot of talk around this, but it's, it's predominantly a tour of unity. So it's five years after the Boer War. The team includes British and Boer players. Yeah. There was a Boer player who'd been interned in a British prisoner of war camp where he played his rugby. 
and some of the Boa players are very uncomfortable about playing against a black player. And the first really big kind of controversy that my my, thesis, uh, my master's thesis kind of uh, confronted was whether or not they had attempted to boycott the game or, or refused to play against him in Devon. Yeah. And there was yeah. this historical account uh, that unfortunately isn't referenced, and it is. Yeah, it's very tenuous, isn't it? It is, and. Uh. Basically, it was based on a fa sort of oral family tradition saying that the South Africans had refused to play against him. And I took the view that I just I didn't think that was the case. I, I felt that that was being written sort of 80 years later, yeah. when South Africa are you know an apartheid nation and, and it's very much there, the sort of public enemy number one. Yeah. I didn't seem to see any ev direct evidence that they would boycott against him but there is evidence that they were unhappy about it mm. there were the players diaries saying that they one of the players went out to sort of injure him to get him off the pitch and so they they, they play against him they beat Devon but then he is mysteriously dropped for the England game yeah he doesn't even make it to the um North v South game doesn't doesn't play in any yeah. of the trial games yeah. so he's not despite the fact he's had a brilliant game in the, the previous game he's the incumbent in the shirt he wasn't injured I, I went through all the various possibilities of what else yeah. there might be and I, I concluded he wasn't injured he, he seemed to be in reasonable form he wasn't even given a chance in the trial games uh, and there were two trial games I yeah. think it was West v the rest and North versus South so he wasn't even considered to be in the top eight yeah. of the, the, the half-backs. Because uh, at that stage, half-backs were the scrum half and fly half kind yeah. of combined. They were much more interchangeable in those days. They were, they? and it was yeah. just starting to get to this point of specialisation, actually sort of pioneered by Adrian Stoop. Mm. But the, the team that was, uh, was picked was uh, his half-back partner in Devon, who was a, a player called Jago, who was very well considered who was also a very working class player, yeah. and Adrian Stoop. Yeah. So I, I kind of concluded that he was at least dropped for a very good player, yeah. but that there, there certainly was talk about racial uncomfort. There's various newspaper accounts saying, sort of giving a, a kind of nod and a wink to say that South Africa had had words that they weren't happy about playing a black player. Yeah. And I think his his class background certainly held against him for the England selectors, and I think there isn't a, a sort of smoking gun or a golden bullet. No, but no. I mean, it's like it's like the Dolavira thing. None of this stuff gets written down, does it? It doesn't. It's no. all hearsay, and especially this is another fifty years back from Dolavira, isn't it? You can't interview anybody. It's, no, it's hard. But I I do think that race played a very significant role in him being dropped for the yeah. South Africa game given that he then reappears for England uh, not in the very next game but in the, the, the game after that and wins further caps yeah. it, it all seems a bit too convenient that, yeah, he, yeah. that he wasn't even considered actually is, is for me what yeah. makes it what scream smacks yeah. of the South Africans have said they won't play him and the irony being that South Africa play France <laughs> and France are captained by uh, Georges Jerome. They are, and, so, and actually, and, again, yeah. your research yeah. showed up that there was, there's a, a wonderful photo of him, I think, with his arm yeah, around. Yeah, the two, the two together. Yeah. Paul Roos, but yeah. how uncomfortable Roos looks. Yeah. Who, yeah. Paul Roos being the South African captain. Yeah. And I, I think, again, you unearthed an account that said, you know, he really despised this, this 
uh, Jerome coming over and being pally and yeah, and yeah, yeah. So it, it it would seem that there is certainly uh, a lot of a lot of smoke to the, this this idea yeah. that. Uh, but I think it's really interesting because both your MA talking about the way in which class and race intersect for Peters, but then also looking at intellectual disability and the way that people can be excluded mm. from mainstream society based on perceived um, disabilities. It all ties together and it kind of just shows how sport can, is just a lens really to look at, at society as a whole, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I, I sometimes kind of refer to a lot of my research areas looking at sort of minority in sport. Yeah. I've also done I've done a fair bit of work with the rugby museum. There's a nice section in the new museum on, on disability sport. Oh, that's and good. Yeah. And where, uh, where would you find the museum? That is at Twickenham, yeah. the, yeah. the World, World Rugby Museum. Yeah. Uh, and they, they genuinely do make an effort for it to be a World Rugby Museum. It's a really, really good place and a very friendly place to research as well, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. They, they've got a fantastic archive there. Yeah. They are incredibly friendly, very, very helpful. I'd, I'd, I'd hugely encourage anyone interested in, in sport history to go and have a look there. Yeah. Uh, they've got, as I said, a fantastic little section. I would say that, obviously it's mine, <laughs> but a fantastic section on various forms of disability rugby but also uh, it's rugby in all its forms because it also has uh, a section on golden oldies rugby and I, I researched uh, an area about gay rugby as well yeah. uh, which is, is possibly going to be my next kind of big research area. Okay that would be really interesting. Uh, yeah. Because again it just it talks about the, the way that sport and society intersect and how sport quite often can be a almost a sort of battering ram through for acceptance. Yeah. Uh, how it challenges there, it you know really challenges ideas of of masculinity and, and gay masculinity and, and straight masculinity and uh, you know when the first club, which was the Kings Cross Steelers, when they're set up in 1995, they've got a fantastic team photo where they've they've sort of blotted out a lot of the faces because the guys playing there, were it known that they were openly or that they were gay, could right. have been fired from their workplace. Yeah. Uh, the first captain was in the army and he would have been allowed to be fired for being gay in the army till 2000. Yeah. If yeah. they were in the foreign office it was still, uh, there would be persona non grata if they were found to be gay. Yeah. And you just think, you know, it's, there's a remarkable social history to be told through the history of that sports club yeah. uh, and that sort of sporting movement. Well, I so. look forward to that. It sounds like you've got yeah. a lot to do um, <laughs> with PhD and then further projects Hopefully. coming up. Yeah, I'm being a bad PhD yeah. student by forever <laughs> looking over the horizon. But, uh, it's always tempting, I think, because, yeah. because it's such an intense thing, the PhD, that you're always thinking, oh, I wish I could do something else. Yeah. Oh, well, thanks for talking to me today, Tom. No problem, Tom. And uh, if you want to read more about Tom's work, you can visit his webpage at tomweirhistorian, that's all one word, .co.uk. And I'll put a link to that on the podcast page. I'll put a link to the World Rugby Museum. I'll probably put a link to a couple of other things as well that we've talked about. Yeah. And if you, the listeners, think you've done some research on sport or leisure history that would be suitable for the seminar series at the IHR, we're looking for speakers for the forthcoming academic year. Um, so do get in touch with us via the BSSH website, which is sportinhistory.org, or you can tweet us at the BSSH's account, and that's easy to find on Twitter if you know how to search for things. And that's all for this episode. So until next time, it's goodbye from both of us. Goodbye. Goodbye.